Good morning, church. Whatever your morning was like this far, however your week went, you're welcome here. Glad you're here. We've been enjoying a great summer series so far, The Art of Christian Living. And what better time of year to consider today's topic, which is entertainment and leisure. It's a bit of a a break from our usual habit of tracking through entire books of the Bible verse by verse. And we'll return to that, and I look forward to it in the fall, but for now, let's enjoy this break. This morning, we are going to be in Luke 12. There aren't too many passages about binge-watching TV shows in the Bible, so this will have to do. Your Bible editors added a title to the passage we're going to look at. They called it the Parable of the Rich Fool, no offense intended. Um, But sometimes our cultural interpretation of entertainment and leisure just kind of makes this title pop to the forefront of my mind. Anyways, let's be honest. We live in a cultural moment where the ruling class, and by that I mean those who inspire the most admiration from the masses, could easily fall into the category of the rich fool. So many people aspire to that status, and the true measure by which you can ascertain whether or not you've made it is um, what you do with your leisure time, just like the rich man in Jesus' parable. So we better read our passage, and we'll spend the rest of our time together squeezing as much wisdom out of Jesus' teachings as we can. So we're looking at Luke 12, verses 13 to 21. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Luke 12, 13 to 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat. Drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated as I pray for our time. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of rest. You indeed created us and designed us to work, but you also imparted the wonderful gift of rest onto us. And we want to steward this gift well. And we turn to you to guide us to make the best use of our downtime. 
Would you please illuminate us by the power of your word with the power of your spirit? Amen. Now, when the Denver Nuggets won the NBA championship this year, all eyes turned to the player the team owed their championship to the most, the enigmatic Serb center, Nikola Jokic. My son claims he's unguardable. He does not physically look like what you would expect of an NBA player. He's a little doughy, a little lumbering, but his awareness of where his opponents and his teammates are on the court make you think he must have eyes on the back of his head. He can make a pass or a shot from anywhere, no matter how many people are guarding him, and it's baffling to watch him play. But what's more baffling was his reaction to winning the championship. Right after the game, you know the kind of interview, right on the court there, all the excitement. He was interviewed for his reaction, and everyone expected the usual, you know, this is the best feeling in the world, this is for the fans, this is for the city of Denver, all those who believed in me were right to do so, and those who didn't, can, you get the idea. That kind of response. But here's what Jokic actually said, I'm going to read it. Picture it, confetti still falling from the rafters, Jokic. We succeeded in our job and we won the whole thing. Sure, it's an amazing feeling, but it's not everything in the world. There's a bunch of things that I like to do. Probably that's a normal thing. Nobody likes his job. If they say they do, they're lying. <laughs> Later, he cursed out loud in frustration when he found out the parade that the league was throwing for him was not for another three days. He just said he just wanted to leave and go home now. Jokic gives us a good look at what glorification looks like when it is dissociated from joy. Joyless glorification is not glorification at all. How can you get excited about going to a parade for someone who would rather be 9,000 kilometers away in Serbia. Joyless glorification doesn't work. The only way to glorify God is to find your joy in God's glory. That's what watching basketball on TV has taught me. And I believe there's theology in basketball. In fact, much to my children's chagrin, there is theology and a good biblical connection in just about everything. There's no movie, show, song that doesn't give us a good opportunity to pause and deliver an impromptu mini-sermon. <laughs> it's always met with groans. Um, anyways, let's turn our attention to a more reliable source and see if the Bible has anything to teach us on the topic. In our passage, Jesus is interrupted and pulled into an argument he wants no part in. A man yells out to him, calling on him to arbitrate a dispute. This man is disgruntled that his brother inherited his parents' wealth, and he wants Jesus to tell the brother to share it equally. This feels like a scenario that many parents are familiar with. Mommy, daddy, my brother won't share. And a lot of people make this mistake of treating Jesus this way, calling upon him in prayer, to rectify some kind of inequality. But Jesus isn't so concerned with his followers receiving their fair share. That's not an expectation that Christians should have. 
let's just say less is more, to the follower of Christ. So Jesus is not concerned in verse 14 about going into arbitration for either brother. Rather, his concern in verse 15 is about the dangers of covetousness. He warns the slighted brother, as well as everybody else who's gathered, against covetousness and tells them that life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. This is not what this man had in mind. This is not the affirmation he wanted from Jesus. So what does all this have to do with our topic? Well, as I said, there may not be mention of first-class air travel or all-inclusive trips here, but there is something quite relevant to the topic. It's relevant because the nature of sin is timeless. Our sinful hearts have always and will always pine for what our brother or our neighbor has. It's just that these days we have thousands and thousands of digital neighbors on social media. In our passage, Jesus doesn't miss the opportunity to pause and deliver a mini-sermon. He redirects the conversation to the real heart of the matter. So he shares a little story, a parable. And Jesus is fond of parables, these short metaphorical narratives. His parables are not real-life examples. They're made-up illustrations, sometimes exaggerated to make a point. And the point is made emphatically through these parables in a way that is often divisive. They're meant to separate the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. Those who hear Jesus' parables were just as likely to be drawn in by his wisdom and become followers as they were to be offended and reject him. So what is the parable about? Jesus tells of a man, a farmer, whose field produces a bumper crop, such a bountiful crop that he has nowhere to store it, in fact. The inflection point of this short parable is in the implied split in the road for the man. How will he react to the fact that he has more than he needs, more than he can even store? What to do with the overflow of his bounty? And Jesus does not spell out any alternate choices the man could have made. We only know his ultimate decision. He decides to rip down his barns, and we're told in verse 18, he builds larger ones to contain all his grain and his goods. This can sort of slip by the modern Bible reader's radar without registering a blip. Sure. What else was he going to do? It makes sense, right? What else was he going to do with all that stuff? When... My garage is full of bicycles and scooters and skateboards and canoes and kayaks and skis, water skis, golf clubs, basketball nets and tennis rackets. What do I do? Where am I going to put my new paddleboard ping pong table? And hopefully soon, don't want to jinx it if the promotion comes through, my new motorcycle. (laughs) You see, obviously, I'm going to need a bigger garage. The modern reader, and even the reader back in Jesus' day, may well respond by thinking, wait, why did they call this the parable of the rich fool? This guy's making a whole lot of sense to me. 
And I know realtors will corroborate. What do they hear from their clients? Time to upgrade. Bigger basement, bigger garage, more storage. The man has made his decision. And in verse 19, we see he's feeling great about it. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. That's right. I'm the man. Look at all that I have. I'm set. It's like backing in your brand new 20-foot center console fishing boat into the driveway with the platinum package F-150. I mean, all the neighbors stop what they're doing and come to check it out, and the world will tell you there is no better feeling on earth than feeling the eyes of your neighbors green with envy all over your new possessions. Look at the second half of verse 19. It's time to relax, eat, drink, and be merry. This guy has it made, made in the shade, time for life on easy street. It's a solid plan. Relax. I mean, after all, he earned it, right? I mean, if you're a stickler in verse 16, Jesus said that it was the land that produced plentifully, but whose land was it? He should relax. Eat, drink, and be merry. Can't you see him mounting a frame with those words on the wall of his man cave? It's not just a male thing. It could just as easily be a woman, but the letters would be way loopier on the sign. <laughs> Am I laying it on a little thick? I mean, I'm just preaching verses 16 to 19 here. And I know that in this day and age, I'm preaching to the choir. Am I right? <laughs> Don't amen that. It's a trap. <sighs> Is anyone else starting to feel a little uneasy? Bracing for the trap to snap shut? Here comes verse 20, and it starts with, but God. It should feel uncomfortable. God steps into this parable. Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Time's up. Game over. You've come to the end of your time on earth. No more fishing trips, no more vacations, no more spa treatments, no more rounds of golf. Your soul is being called to account for the life you lived. Time to face God. Leave your stuff behind, you won't be needing it. Sobering. And in verse 21, Jesus steps in to explain how this parable is relevant to anyone who hears it. It's not just this man who's a fool. No. So is anyone who lays up treasure for themselves and is not rich towards God. So we're left with a question. How are you using your riches for God? God granted us everything we have. And just like the rich fool whose land produced his riches, we also are granted all that we have. And I, and I know... Not everyone is rich. By certain standards of measurement, some are richer than others. But to be clear, if a little facile, 85% of the world lives on less than $30 a day. So if you gross 1000 bucks a month, you're richer than about 90% of the world. And by a fair bit too. I mean, 62% of the world lives off of less than $10 a day, $300 a month. 62% of the world, what's that, 5 billion people? I'm not going to belabor this particular point, 
But just understand, if you want to extricate yourself from Jesus' target audience here, you're going to have to try real hard. You see, I told you Jesus' parables have a wedge effect. They would divide his audience into followers and rejectors. And the split, the dividing line, where Jesus places the narrow edge of his wedge, is right between verses 17 and 18. What should the man do with all that God has granted him over and above what he needs? One option is to hoard it, as the man does. And Jesus doesn't present any other options, but they exist, right? What could he have done? Shared it with his neighbors, donated it to an orphanage, invited others to come enjoy it, hosted a huge banquet, and invited the whole town. There are many ways to use what God gives us that honor him and his kindness and generosity. There are ways to enjoy the gifts God grants us while glorifying God as the giver. Even if none of them seem to register with a man in the parable. I think that's the fissure that Jesus is going to crack open with his wedge. But I think that the wedge itself is the expression Eat, drink, and be merry. I want to spend some time considering this line, because I've been a little befuddled by it for some time now. Is it good or bad? Can you mount it and put it on the wall? It's a famous line. A lot of people think it's from Shakespeare. Obviously, it's not. Eat, drink, and be merry. I'm sure you've heard it in all sorts of different situations. It's used equally by those promoting the YOLO lifestyle, you know YOLO, you only live once, as those who decry the YOLO lifestyle. Eat, drink, and be merry. The line itself is a sort of Rorschach test. The way you respond to this line says a lot about the state of your heart. So here's the question to diagnose your heart. Is eat, drink, and be merry a motto to live by, or is it a cautionary word the way Jesus uses it in his parable? I was curious about the history of the line, did a little bit of research, and the surprising thing is that either side of the wedge, everyone understands it the same way. There's no difference in the interpretation, but people have completely opposing reactions to it. It's binary. You fall on one side or the other. The line is also often attributed to the Greek philosopher Epicurus. Epicurus is the earliest philosopher on record to promote the philosophy of living life to its fullest extent. He wouldn't be the last. But he's considered the father of the philosophy of hedonism, which says that the chief end of man is the pursuit of happiness and the avoidance of suffering. Epicurus died in like 270 BC, so it's possible that Jesus was aware of him when he used this line in his parable. But understand, the philosopher lived long after the expression was already used in the Old Testament. Versions of the expression, anyway, appear in a bunch of Bible verses, twice in Ecclesiastes 3 and 8. In Isaiah, remember in Isaiah 22, verse 13, And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen, slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And then in the New Testament, Paul quotes Isaiah in 1 Corinthians 15, 
verse 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In a surprising way, everyone is saying the exact same thing. None of the Bible authors actually disagree with Epicurus on the usage of the phrase. Solomon, Isaiah, Paul, and Jesus in our passage mean it the same way. If, if you accept the world's notion that there is nothing else to life, if we are all just riding a one-way ticket to the grave, then make the most of every minute of every day. Squeeze every last drop out of this life. Live with abandon. Live every night like a Viking warrior on the night before battle. I mean, why let any morals give you pause? Why slow to consider the less fortunate? What difference does it make? You're all going to be laying in the ground, consumed by the darkness. So the only thing worth pursuing is whatever makes me feel good now. It's the essence of the YOLO lifestyle. You only live once. Make it count. It's the world's mantra. Eat, drink, be merry. Food in excess. Alcohol. Drugs, experiences that deliver thrills and excitements. It's the definition of life as the pursuit of endorphins. That is what the world is pushing. If it feels good right now, do it. Worry about the cost later. Tomorrow is the same no matter what. It's all headed towards nothingness. It's a philosophical justification for whatever floats your boat. Anything goes. But what if tomorrow you don't die? What if you don't only live once? What if you live forever? Well, that changes everything. Because if this is not all there is to life, then the chief end of man is not the pursuit of happiness and the avoidance of suffering. Epicurus's philosophy craters. Hedonism no longer makes sense. It's all built on the foundation of there is nothing else. It all derives from this is all there is, so make the most of it. But if this is not all there is, then what? Then there must be a different chief and a man. And you may be familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which supplies this notion. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This isn't a biblical quote, but it is biblical. The Bible is very clear that, the, that man was created in order to bring glory to God. That is clearly the chief end of Christians and the church, according to the Bible, to bring glory to God. And in his groundbreaking book, Desiring God, John Piper made a very slight update to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And he proposes what he calls Christian hedonism, the pursuit of happiness in God. In fact, Piper's entire ministry is built on this, Desiring God. 
Piper tweaks the familiar catechism ever so slightly from man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And he changes it to man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. So that would mean that our chief end is to glorify God and we do so by enjoying him forever. This is the anti-YOLO, the opposite of eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, which is not do not eat, do not drink, and be miserable, but eat, drink, and be merry to the glory of God for tomorrow we live. Since we are created by God and he has granted us eternal life to live in his presence, worshiping and glorifying him forever and ever, root your joy in that truth now. He is your greatest pleasure and you finding your greatest pleasure in him is exactly what brings him most glory. No father wants his kids to spend Father's Day with him against their will, grumbling and complaining the whole day long. I mean, same goes for mothers on Mother's Day. No, what we want is our kids to want to spend that day with us. And in God's case, spending time with him comes easy. His children want to spend time with God for a few different reasons. He's a good father. He has given us everything that we want to, so we want to glorify him out of gratitude. He is the source of our joy. He designed and created us. He knows what is good for us, and it is him. And he gives us good gifts. We enjoy him and glorify him by enjoying his gifts. Now, we could come up with many different answers to what the chief end of man is. Good things, even. You know, to share the gospel, to stand for righteousness, to love your neighbor. But the first commandment, the most foundational aspect of the Christian faith, the prerequisite for all other Christian obedience is to love God, to find your joy in who he is, in what he has done, and what he gives. If God is not the source of my joy... I really should not be preaching. There's no point in me trying to share my faith with others. We're only ever going to effectively be able to share with others whatever our source of joy is. That's what we should be preaching and evangelizing because that's what we're already doing by the lives that we live and our actions. So I might as well become a a realtor and sell bigger homes and cottages, become a sports car dealer, a boat dealer, or a drug dealer. I should push the source of my joy, sell fatty foods and alcohol, because if God is not my source of joy, I'm not going to enjoy heaven. So eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But, but if you know who God is, what he did for you, what he has given you, then enjoy him with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and dive in. Be all in for your one source of joy. Go to that source and go deep. 
As Paul tells the church in Philippi, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Put down the phone, free yourself of the algorithm, and get to know your God. Deepen your knowledge of him, and as you do, you will deepen your love of him. Enjoy his gifts, his gifts of mountains and beaches and animals and forests, his gifts of meats and grains and fruits and juices and wines, his gifts of art and sports and music, his gift of friends. Enjoy the free gift of grace, the gift of his word. Enjoy the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of freedom from sin and death. And enjoy the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, his son whom he did not spare, who he offered up as a sacrifice for the consequences of our sinful hearts that are never content with what we have, that always covet what we don't have and lead us to living vile, immoral lives, abusing the gift and reviling the giver. But through his sacrifice, God has atoned for our sin And when we acknowledge our need for Christ, he also grants us the gift of the Holy Spirit to continue to grow us out of our love for what the world loves and into our love for what Christ loves. Of course, you should find joy in sharing the gospel and introducing someone to their Savior. But God does not depend on you to do that. That's a privilege that you may be invited into. This should take some of the guilt, some of the pressure off. It's good to rest. You don't need to feel guilty for taking a break from evangelizing, serving, giving. Not only can God fulfill his purposes while you enjoy leisure and entertainment, but if you glorify God by enjoying his good gifts, you're actually doing exactly what you're called to do. You are glorifying him in your rest. So I know. Some of you are just sitting here thinking, I mean, it's fine to know what the Westminster Shorter Catechism says and what Epicurus thought in 270 BC. What about Squid Game? Can I stream Squid Game on Netflix? That's really all I'm here to find out. Well, fair enough. Let's talk a little bit about what this all boils down to. And don't Don't watch Squid Game. But hopefully, no one is too surprised by this. But we're going to find there is consistency in the Bible and how Christians are called to live their lives. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This is reminiscent of what we discussed previously in the series. We enjoy the gift of Christian freedom in our decisions. And the limits to that freedom are set by our fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom. Here's a test then. Can you truly praise and thank God for the gift of what you seek to enjoy as entertainment and leisure? If not, then stay away from it. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Avoid anything that's going to cause you to sin, obviously, 
I mean, avoid pornography, avoid anything else that may cause you to lust or even tempt you into lustful thoughts. Avoid anything that causes anger to take root in your heart. For some of you, that may be avoiding watching a sports game. Avoid anything that causes covetousness to take root. For some of you, that could be a real estate TV show on HGTV. Avoid drinking any alcohol if you're susceptible to abusing alcohol, if you lack self-control. You will not be any worse off for any of these things that you avoid. You're not missing out on anything. And if you find that you cannot give it up, then you've identified an idol. So flee from all idolatry. But note that these are all individual decisions because only you and the Holy Spirit know your own sinful temptations. Although you are likely more susceptible than you think, so don't be too quick to let yourself off the hook. But what about if you can enjoy a particular activity or program with a clear conscience, it's not sinful, it does not create temptations to sin, then there's just one more factor to prayerfully consider that may limit your freedom. Could you be leading another into sin by your freedom? Let me explain. In 1 Corinthians, Paul illustrates this principle with temple meat. What on earth is temple meat? All right. In Paul's time in Corinth, animals were offered in sacrifice to idols in pagan temples. And anyone could go to these temples and buy the meat of the animals that were offered in sacrifice to idols. The pagan priests played double duty. They would butcher the animals and resell the meat. And this was the cheapest option to buy meat. Um, Oftentimes because the meat was a little dodgy. But it was cheaper than, you know, the local farmer or butcher. But given everything surrounding the temple, all the icky, unsavory, idolatrous activity, was it okay for Christians to buy their meat there? In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says, As to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Therefore, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Christians are free to buy this meat. It doesn't really matter if it was offered in sacrifice to a fake God. Paul says, yeah, go ahead and buy the cheap meat and enjoy it to the glory of our God. We have that freedom. And please note that this is individual Christian freedom, not relativism. I hope you see the difference. If not, that's a topic for another discussion. You can think of it a little bit like buying halal meat at the grocery store. You go to Superstore, sold out of all the chicken except for the halal chicken. You got people coming over. Is it okay to throw the halal chicken on the barbecue as a Christian? Yeah, go, go ahead. Now, you may have a personal conviction against it, Mind your conscience. Do not violate your conscience. If it doesn't sit right with you, steer clear. But do not either condemn a Christian brother or sister who isn't bothered. It's their freedom. But here's the twist that I wanted to get to. Consider this situation. What if you invited a friend over for dinner who was a newly converted Christian from a Muslim background and 
you had them over, you fire up the barbecue, and you take out the chicken from a package that is clearly marked as halal, you would not want to make your guest think that in order to be Christian, you need to eat halal. Paul warns you should not, by your freedom, lead another into sin. In particular, a new Christian, newer in the faith. Again, in 1 Corinthians 8, he says, Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. This principle is not exclusive to temple meat or even to what you eat. It is true of your Christian freedom in general and applies to your choices in entertainment and leisure. If you can enjoy a glass of wine with dinner without issues of self-control, you know, go ahead, but you would never do so if you had a guest over that you knew was a recovering alcoholic. You would not lead them into that temptation. And same goes for all sins. Treat them all like addictions. We're all addicted to sin. So let's not lay out any stumbling blocks for each other. Let's not set any triggers for each other. Let's ensure we are not leaving temptations in anyone's path. As a Christian, you're always witnessing to those around you. Be conscious of that. What are you telling them by your behavior? What are you broadcasting is the most important thing in your life to them through your social media accounts? And what are you witnessing to your children? You may be able to sing along to a secular song without taking any notice of the intended message of the lyrics, but your children may be susceptible to the influence of that message from an artist they admire, and they may think your singing along is an endorsement of the political message embedded in the song. And these days, there is an embedded political message in every song, every TV show, every cartoon, every movie, every box of cookies, and every flavor of ice cream. So talk to them, point out the lie in the cultural messaging, and make sure they know what you believe and where you find your source of truth, the Bible. Jesus warns about causing someone to sin this way in Mark 9, 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So you have freedom. But you should be wise in the fear of the Lord about how you use that freedom to the glory of God. Ultimately, you need to be honest with yourself. Are you truly enjoying the entertainment to, glory, to the glory of God? Or are you just justifying it as harmless fun? The goal is not to see what you can get away with, but what is good. If Jesus were with you, would you invite him along? And I'm not trying to be all WWJD on you. But think about it this way. We restrict our freedom to protect relationships all the time. A husband would never go on vacation with a woman who is not his wife, nor go to the movies or dress shopping. Not because there's a commandment against it, 
but because he chooses to limit his freedom to protect his relationship with his wife. We all need to seek wisdom and set our own limits on our own freedom to protect our relationship with Christ. I know we'd all rather have a list of do's and don'ts. But living in the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, not the beginning of list making. You have a choice in everything you eat, drink, watch, listen to, partake in. Avoidance of sin and temptation is not the end goal. That's just the starting point. The bare minimum for the Christian. And each one of us determines where the line is. Not that there's a prize for whoever denies himself the most. But as Paul says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. If God's ultimate gift to us is his son, and if Christ truly died for you to pay for the devastating cost of your sin, then why would you go anywhere near that sin again? And if Christ really rose from the dead, then so will you. If he really is interceding on your behalf at the right hand of God, then you cannot say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And if God is real and he rules over this world, then the chief end of man is not the pursuit of happiness and the avoidance of suffering. The chief end of man is to know God and to glorify him by enjoying him forever. And that is not our duty. That's our ultimate fulfillment and privilege. It's not that long ago we were in Isaiah 55, right? Remember? Verse 55, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Maple Avenue Baptist Church, do all to the glory of God. Because joyless glorification is not glorification at all. Only way to glorify God is to find your joy in God's glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from you, the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We pray, Lord, that you would help us grow in our contentment for all that you have given us, that we would enjoy your gifts while glorifying you, the giver. And I pray that our ultimate joy would come from the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.